Dear listeners, this is Faces of Digital Health, the podcast on how technologies are healing healthcare around the world. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and today's episode has a very diverse content entailing finance industry, public health, digital health, and blockchain. Here's the story. A sex hunting anthropologist walks into a mortgage finance institution and out into the world to lead health initiatives globally. You're going to hear the fascinating tale of Samson Williams' health career journey. Samson is an entrepreneur and fintech guru who has been an epidemiologist for the state of Florida. He worked as an anthrax and weapons of mass destruction expert for DC Department of Health and currently splits his time between serving on the DC Department of Health's Institutional Review Board. He is an Irish ambassador for crowdfunding to the EU and partner at Access and X, a blockchain and cryptocurrency consultancy based in Washington, DC. Samson shares his insight on how to deal with the greatest challenge in finance, technology and health, humans. Your CV says that you're a classically trained anthropologist, serial entrepreneur and accidental finance expert who is happy to share the life lessons he's paid the iron price for. Can you tell me a bit more about what this iron price was? <laughs> oh, the iron price is a reference to Game of Thrones. Uh, and so I paid the iron price for just fucking up stuff left and right. Um, I started my first business when I was 24. And you learn a lot of things about taxes and billing when you're 24. And the first time you go to file taxes and you find out that $40,000 for entertainment is not appropriate tax deduction. Um so you got this big grin on your face. What is your question? <laughs> yeah, that pretty much answers the <laughs> the description. But you have a bachelor's uh, degree in cultural anthropology. Yes. And then a master's in emergency and disaster management from American Military University. Yes. And you're an epidemiologist. I used to be an epidemiologist, yeah. Okay, so I named... Three very different things, and you work in finance. So, can you explain a bit, like, how did you jump from one thing to another, and how the, do these sectors uh, intersect? Oh yeah, so I initially I went to Florida State University for undergrad for anthropology, uh, especially in cultural anthropology, and from there I went to work uh, in for the state of Florida for the Department of Children and Families, uh, working in economic self sufficiency. So, in America, that's like. Uh, TANF temporary 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 aid for needy families, uh, food stamps, uh, health care, Medicaid, Medicare, uh, and home visits. So I got that job because right out of college, who, who, they called me back first probably to get an interview. So I was making like, I don't know, $26,000, $27,000 a year. It was fantastic because, you know, when you're fresh out of school, it's great. Um, so I worked there for a little bit. Then I went to grad school for... Uh, medical anthropology. So while I was in grad school for medical anthropology, I got tired of explaining what that was to people. So I got a job as an epidemiologist making pretty maps, um, a lot of data and, and uh, statistics. Um, but I also went out and engaged with people, talked to people, and I submitted my thesis for my master's in medical anthropology. What was the thesis about? Um, oh, man, this is like a decade ago. 
uh, Sex Hunters. And so that was the title of it. And so I worked for the Miami-Dade Health Department doing HIV, AIDS, syphilis, hepatitis, uh, B and C. And so we, I interacted with, uh, I used to know all the working girls on 79th and Biscayne. And so, cause those are my constituents. Those are my clients and my customers. So we provided them with public health nece- uh, needs. Um, cause you know, they have a hard job, uh, and you want to keep them relatively healthy. And so for a while, if you knew me in Miami, uh, next to their pimps, I was their favorite second man. So what was the conclusion of the thesis? I submitted my thesis and then I started a business, my first business. Uh, that was June of 2004. Uh, and so in the next six months, I made a little over $400,000. So what was that business about? Indoor air quality testing for particulate matter. Okay. How do you go from that topic to indoor air quality? Lab work. At the end of the day, it's you're looking at a lab. Uh, you're looking through a microscope at something, whether it's a... Uh, Whether it's uh, HIV, AIDS, or if it's particulate matter in the air, you're still looking at it through a microscope. Okay. So, yeah, it's, it's basic science. So how did you then get into f- finance? And uh, why, did you, why did you leave a medical field and healthcare? Well, I got into finance because uh, for indoor air quality, it, I wanted to get ahead of my clients who would call me for mold. So when you have hurricanes, the walls get wet, mold grows. So in order to get ahead of them calling me for emergency preparedness, and so I looked into um, a master's in emergency management. So I started it, and then I saw a job at some place called Fannie Mae that was looking for emergency managers. And so they, are, they had a 90-day contract for an emergency manager, and that 90 days turned into eight years. And that's where I learned my finance do you ever consider going back to to, to public <laughs> health or health care or did finance completely overwhelm you because the next one of the questions that i have is you you recently helped with establishing a cryptocurrency mining company axis and eggs uh-huh. right first of all how do axis and eggs go together <laughs> uh it's a, it's a multi-part question so What I learned at the Department of Children and Families uh, were people, they came in looking for assistance, right? Uh, council housing if you're in Europe. Uh, and so they had nothing. So people start off as anxious. They move to stress. Uh, they go to panic. If you can get them before hysterical, you can actually give them correct information and calm them down and get them on the right path. The same thing happens if I'm going to tell you that you have HIV or AIDS. Uh, you start off as anxious because you're at the health department. You move to stress the moment I sit down and look at you. And so it's giving you accurate, correct information in a sympathetic and humane manner that gets you. You might be panicked, but that's cool because you can still take direction. And so you don't become hysterical. Uh, hysterical meaning that cognitive dissonance where you're no longer paying attention. And that can last not just for like a moment while you're in the office. That could last for months where you... You know you have a diagnosis, but you refuse to recognize that. So therefore, you won't seek treatment. You won't come for follow-up. And so a panicked person, you can still talk them, talk them through it because it, you've just received some life-altering news. And now, particularly nowadays, it's far more socially acceptable. It's a chronic disease that can be easily managed. But in the early 2000s, it wasn't like that at all. Um, and so people start off anxious, move to stress. They can become panicked, just want to get them through hysterical. So when I moved to Fannie Mae for emergency management, 
if your house is underwater or you're upside down on your mortgage or you've just lost your house, you start off as anxious, move to stress, get to panic. We just want to get you before you become hysterical. Um, and so at every moment, whether we're talking about public health or any type of health or finance, we still have a person behind it. And so how we made that leap into axes and eggs, which is, is basically a fintech, a financial technology company, uh, behind all fintech or all technology is still people. Otherwise, we're not quite uh, serving our AI overlords yet. And so wherever you have a person in the process, that's where I come in. So what exactly, what specifically uh, was your job at Fannie Mae and what do you do now with Access and Eggs? Uh, so at Fannie Mae, I started off as an emergency manager. Uh, when I started, the stock price was probably $72 a share. By the end of 2008, it dropped to a penny. And so for all the people who, who worked internally to Fannie Mae, your 401k went from a couple million to, I don't know, a couple uh, hundred bucks or so. It, it dropped exponentially. So you went from anxious to stress to panic very quickly because you thought you were going to retire. Now you're not. You need to work the rest of your life. Uh, and my job there was to make sure people didn't come to the office and kill everybody. So how, how does that, how does emergency management Defer from psychotherapy, for example, or mental health management. Uh, if you've ever been stuck on an elevator and no one communicates to you, no one tells you anything, you will become panicked and hysterical very quickly. But if you're in a stressful situation, uh, accurate, clear communications can help de-escalate that. So even if you're stuck on an elevator, if I say, hey, what's up? This is Samson. We have a handyman on the way in 10 minutes. Hang out for a little bit. They're coming. You immediately calm down. Right. You start to de-escalate. And so at Fannie Mae, same basic process. It's called organizational resiliency, business resiliency, because if your organization isn't resilient, your people aren't in the right mindset, uh, even morale, shit gets done. Um, and so I worked at Fannie Mae for 18 months and then I went to work for the health department, the D.C. Uh, health department, uh, doing anthrax uh, for 309 days. So I was a city readiness initiative coordinator and the strategic national stockpile uh, coordinator, strategic national, the SNS, uh, strategic national stockpile of medicine means that anywhere in the continental U.S. within uh, 12 hours, they will have medical prophylactics delivered in the case of a nuclear, biological, radiological or chemical attack. What was the most stressful situation that you got yourself into? Uh, at that time, so I went to do anthrax and so they run things called pods, which are points of dispension for medical prophylaxis. In this case, for anthrax, you give out doxycycline or some type other type of antibiotic. Uh, but at the time, H1N1, uh, the H1N1 flu was prevalent. This is uh, 2009, uh, 2009, 2010. So bird flu, right? Bird flu. Uh, so the most stressful thing was at the time, the CDC was giving out limited amounts of, excuse me, It's giving out limited amounts of, uh, of flu vaccine. And so they give us a thousand at a time, a thousand doses. And so there, there we have a thousand doses. We're at a public high school. The, the uh, point of dispension, the pod, it opens at five o'clock, but by three o'clock, there is a line of 5,000 people outside. And so I went outside, I counted off to a thousand, and then I proceeded to tell all the pregnant women with their two year olds, They're seven months pregnant and they've got a two-year-old on their hip. 
that we don't have any vaccine for them, any flu uh, shots for them, and they need to come back another time. So at the time, the recommendations from the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, was that a, a child was anyone under 26 and that pregnant women and children should be vaccinated. Otherwise, they had a potential of death. And so basically, I told someone, you're, we don't have any shots for you, so you're going to die. And so when you tell that to someone who's pregnant and with a two-year-old, which this was everyone standing in line, they don't tend to respond that well. They start off anxious, move to stress. They get to panic very quickly. You just want to talk them down from hysterical. That was very stressful. So you would, you, I assume you were stressed, anxious, uh, and what prevented you from becoming <laughs> hysterical or were you? Uh, training. I went to, I'm a trainer for, Uh, FEMA. So FEMA has a FEMA stands for the Federal Emergency Management Administration. I have a variety of training certifications for I, um, ICS, which stands for Incident Command System. Um, crisis, I have training for crisis communications, um, medical prophylactics, uh, health cares for hospitals, medical response, uh, IED, Im improvised explosive device response, uh, mass casualty response. I have a bunch of trainings. I'm also a ICS instructor. I have a bunch of instructor certifications from FEMA. So it's muscle memory by that point. So if some shit happens, it's like, oh, yeah, that's happening. I have a checklist in my head. Let's run through this checklist right quick. So can you share this checklist with <laughs> us? I mean, I think you can offer a lot of advice on how to manage stress. I mean, uh, what you just described, it seems like the rest of the world is not uh, entitled to be in stressed out most of the time. That's true. So in an emergency situation, actually I can share with you one of the easiest things I learned in um, improvised explosive uh, training. It's called rule of thumb. So it doesn't matter what size the, if you think it's a suspicious package, cover it with your thumb and keep walking back until your thumb covers the whole thing. So if it's like a can of Coke, you only have to walk back a little bit and it's like oh your whole thumb covers it or if it's a truck you need to be probably a blocker or two away uh typically what kills you in those instances isn't the explosion it's the percussion wave it more or less bruises or liquefies your internal organs so you look fine but inside you're bleeding out uh and so that's called the rule of thumb so if i'm in a situation where there's a suspicious package happened to me in prague at the airport actually uh in 2016 i put my thumb up And started walking backwards. And I said, oh, I am now at a safe distance. I walk a little bit further back. Uh, and then I was, because uh, the police were responding. And I didn't want to get blown up at an airport. Uh, that's basically it. Uh, the other rule of thumb is, uh, if something's going to explode, open your mouth. So that it, it sort of equalizes the pressure within your ears. So your eardrums don't pop. Um, so yeah, if you, if there's a great program here in America called your CERT community emergency response team. I'm also a CERT trainer, uh, where you can go, it's free and they give you first aid and a variety of tools and resources to help you respond to an emergency. Uh, there's something called the Stafford Act, which says they have up to, uh, 72 hours to respond in the event of an emergency. So if there's a major flood, fire, earthquake, disaster, whatever, you're on your own for the first 72 hours. And this is where emergency management ties into public health because uh, I went to Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. Uh, this is like 2005. That's a public health emergency because one is drinking, it's no drinkable water. Two, you have about uh, 1,500 dead and then you have a mass shelter. 
for people with special needs. Uh, they're on ventilators, respirators. They have do not resuscitate orders. They're diabetic. Um, and it's, so that's where emergency management and public health tie brilliantly together. And that all leads into finance and fintech because, again, people are all tied into this ecosystem because you're rendering services to a person, whether you're rendering, whether you're I'm saving you f- from your rooftop from a flood or I'm walking you through my app. It's because it's a person behind that. And when people aren't uh, given information up front that's clear, they tend to start off as anxious, move to stress, become uh, panic and can become hysterical if you don't communicate to them. How much do you think uh, digital health solutions or communication tools can help in these situations? Uh, exponential. Um, uh, there's a whole thing for the Red Cross for um, family assistance, meaning I don't know where my loved one is. And so in the previous in the previous natural disasters like Hurricane Katrina are going back further to September 11th. Um, it's I don't know where this person is. Like, how do you identify this person? Where, how do I reconnect them? So before we used to have call centers. Now it's typically you can Facebook will send you an alert to check in. If you're in a specific, uh, geographical area, they'll send you an alert to check in. So you can let all your family members know, Hey, I'm alive. I'm okay. Their anxiety levels drop exponentially. They are no longer hysterical or panicked. They're anxious because they want to see you, but they're otherwise fine because they know, Oh, a device, a bit of technology, a, an app more than likely has helped me, has helped calm me down and get me right. And so that's just one way. The other way is uh, communications. Uh, there's a system called WeWAS. I forget what it stands for, but if there's like a tornado, you'll see that your phone will send out an emergency alert and it might tell you to shelter in place uh, because there's a tornado outside. And that's just another tech tool that helps keep people safe. Because when I think of, for me, public health goes hand in hand with emergency management, emergency preparedness, and disaster response. Because if you're prepared for an emergency, when there is an emergency, you know how to respond. Therefore, we won't hit a disaster because the disaster really happens when people don't have the information or tools and are empowered to respond. Because some shit can go completely wrong. But if you know how to respond to that, it's like, oh, yeah, I lost my house. That really sucks. But I have a backup plan. I know where my important documents are. They're on an app or I've downloaded a copy of birth certificates, social securities numbers. And now, even though my house is gone, in any other day and age, I would be homeless or displaced or quote unquote a refugee. But now that's unfortunate. But I'm going to go institute my backup plan and go hang out with my sister for a little while or my family member. So basically what you're saying is that we... In time, everybody's going to be aware of the importance of backups because I don't think many people are doing that today. Yeah, there's a whole thing for your family emergency preparedness plan. Uh, Actually, if you go to FEMA, fema fema.gov forward slash family emergency, it will give you a whole slew of information as well as uh, there's an app also for FEMA for emergency preparedness that it says... Uh, suppose you're diabetic, you have insulin. What is your plan if you have no power? Right. And so it walks you through how you can prepare yourself and your family. Or if you have any type of prescription, if your medical records are at CVS, but the CVS system is down, how do, is there anyone else? If you're in a coma that has access to your records. Um, so that's another place where, excuse me, 
that's another place where um, digital technology will help, particularly on as we look move towards blockchain, where you can take your medical record with you, um, much like you would wear a watch. It's probably built into a wearable so that you're like, oh, yeah, here's my medical record. And then your doctor can see all your prescriptions and whatnot. Yeah, we're still uh, quite far from that. Um, the blockchain technologies are currently, um, uh, at, the, uh, at the top of the Gartner curve. So it's mostly excitement. So where do you see the biggest potential in healthcare for blockchain? I think the biggest potential for blockchain, it starts off with identity, meaning who is this person in front of me? Cause then I can, Attach not only healthcare, but any type of medical record, uh, any type of transcript for school, uh, any type of treatment history. And it's, it all starts with identity. Yeah. And from there, I can give you different financial products if I know who you are and I know, and I have attached your credit history to, to you. Um, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, which is part of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, mm-hmm. is also betting on uh, blockchain-based solutions to improve data collection and, and analysis. So uh, how do you see that? How far is that development in your view? Uh, so earlier this year, we were working on a, a uh, healthcare exchange, a blockchain healthcare exchange for Zambia. We got sidetracked by a tiny little uh, cholera outbreak that happened in Zambia. It's still ongoing. Uh, their aquifers have they have cholera in their aquifers. Um, so cholera is not a very sexy disease, meaning uh, you basically shit yourself to death from dehydration. Um, and so in 2010, uh, the Nepalese UN workers brought cholera to Haiti. It's 2018 and they still have cholera. And so we got sidetracked from implementing a public health exchange in Zambia because they're tackling the cholera outbreak. But there's other places who are looking to transition their medical records um, to a blockchain-based system. Uh, I think Estonia is probably leading the way just because they're digital everything and they're looking at blockchain for the redundancy and the decentralized nature. Uh, there's a big fear that the Russians will decide to reclaim Estonia and so they're just looking at blockchain for that reason, not only for health, but just for all data management. Um, so you're probably going to see something uh, right now, patient Tory. Uh, they exist in the States. So they're try- they're looking at electronic health records right now. They've been around for like three years. And again, it's just adoption. It's finding those big uh, insurance providers, health providers in the States who want to adopt that technology. So I'll say probably in the next 18 months, you'll see a, a legit enterprise solution rolled out. Um, some say that the blockchain technology is associated with a reward concept, so kind of to incentivize people to use, uh, to use different services or to be compliant with medicine. How do you see that aspect of uh, blockchains and startups that are trying to um, basically change transactions and value of patient data and patient actions? Is are they trying to change the value of patient data or recognize the value of patient data? Because for the for up until this point, you had no say over your data, whether it was patient or consumer or surfing. Right, you're on the internet surfing. You don't own your data, but your data is valuable. I think a person's data is like each user on Facebook is like 175 bucks a, a year that they're worth, but you've never gotten a penny of that. And and so now it's. 
it's people saying, hey, I, I, my data is unique. It is to me and it's worth something. Maybe I should benefit from this. Yeah, at the World Economic Forum, personal data was declared a new asset class. And when it comes to healthcare, uh, patient-generated health data, they said it has potentially a large value. The problem is that because the systems are closed, vendor locked in and silos, you can't really connect um, patient-generated data with medical records. And that means that a lot of uh, potential is there, but we can't really use it yet. So Correct. what's your view on that? Um, we're so does data have value or are we just imagining that it has value? Because, you know, the, the second question when it comes to value of data is also that, for example, f uh, when it comes to clinical trials, you can have a lot of patient data, but usually clinical trials will then start off with completely new data sets. I think that the data does have value. Uh, that's well demonstrated if you look at the business models for this, the most valuable companies on the planet. Apple, Google, Amazon, they're all, ba they're really data mining, right? That's their data to them is oil. That's what they use uh, to monetize their system, their goods and their products and streamline them. And so in the medical field, uh, I'm wearing a Fitbit, right? And so I assume someone is collecting my data somewhere on the back end that tells you how active I am, how much. Are I'm you moving. analyzing any of it? <laughs> I am not analyzing any of it because right now I don't have that easy. I mean, I look at the app. It tells me, oh, Samson, you're lazy. Get up and walk. And so do you walk? I do. I try to make my 10,000 steps because uh, there are some behavioral modifications. And so there's all this data that these devices collect that your doctor would probably love to see from a longitudinal perspective. And if you're in public health, you want to say, oh, uh, I'm looking for black males who are five foot eight, 210 pounds. I want to see their uh, their uh, Fitbit data for the last 10 years. Before that was never an option, right? And based upon that, we can talk about lifestyles and different things, uh, comorbidity factors later on in life. And so, yeah, there's tons of data. There's tons of value in the data. We just, we haven't figured out how to tap it. Um, but I think as we get closer to having smart bots and smart algorithms and AIs who can literally get terabytes of data and crunch them quickly that we'll see yeah there is more there is more value in data than anything else and especially uh once implantable sensors come more prevalent you know because now with with wearables and smartwatches you can still decide not to use them so then you have inaccurate data as a patient you know if you just let's say use your watch for half a day once a week instead of every day 24 7 yeah, uh, that's gonna, it's gonna be an interesting phase, not just for data, but also privacy and the concept of privacy. Like what do you expect to be private? Uh, it might be that only your thoughts are private, uh, cause everything else, uh, when you go through the airport in Dubai, for instance, they scan your face, facial recognition a few dozen times. The moment you step off the airport, uh, and the moment you go back through, cause they, they're tracking you at every moment. And so our whole concept of privacy will be further pushed and further pushed and defined by the technology that enables us, enables not only us, but Big Brother and just private corporations to know everything about you. 
You know, that's one thing that they say is scary when it comes to um, finger uh, fingerprint uh, and opening your phone with your fingerprint, you know. That's really practical, but on the other hand, that means that somebody is collecting that as well. Yeah, so as a black man in the, the States, uh, I use a... They can compel you to put your finger on a your phone to unlock it. The police can, but they can't compel you to use to open your phone using a passcode. Uh, they need a warrant for that. And so I encourage everyone. Uh, your fingerprint can also easily be duplicated using uh, scotch tape and glue, which is how they hacked it the first time. And so you can get scotch tape and glue at any pharmacy or school or school supply store. So. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't believe in my fingerprints for opening devices. So we talked about public health. We talked about blockchain. And if we combine the two, um, you see a lot of potential of the use of blockchain for medical research. Can you maybe say a few things about that? Uh, yeah, I'm going to give a shameless plug to Science Distributed. Uh, Sean Mannion and Laura, Lauren Long out of uh, Bal- uh, John Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, the short bit of that is better science, uh, decentralized research, lots of peer review immediately. You can track who does what, who's doing what kind of research on your blockchain. Um, cheaper research because there's... There can be hundreds of people working on a single problem, and so it can reduce the time it takes to create treatments and cures. Right now, it's about 17 years to go from bench to bedside, uh, which leads ultimately leads to faster miracles. Uh, here in America, diabetes, hypertension, obesity, uh, cancer, particularly colon cancer, those are all things that if we use our brain power towards something other than finance, we could actually come up with faster miracles because it goes better science, cheaper research, faster miracles. Uh, and that's where I think blockchain will really help in the medical field. Cause you have a three pound supercomputer on your shoulder on the top of your shoulders. And there's not a piece of hardware in it. It's completely organic, but we only sort of know how it works. Um, so I think that a blockchain is going to be that the network upon which AIs are built upon which the human brain is mapped and we'll see where that leads us because when it comes to that, we don't really know where the technology is going to take us. We have a general sort of idea, but Moore's Law and just the singularity happen and all of a sudden it's like, ta-da, life. But to which extent do you think the problem that you mentioned, so the better research with connecting the data, actually derives from lack of uh, connectivity of data, uh, but not lack of interest to connect the data? Because if you're talking about the uh, U.S. healthcare market, uh, it's a free market, you know, so you've got a lot of really, really good research institutions, really, really good medical centers that don't interact with each other because they're are more in competition. I did an episode um, on that called uh, Big Medical Centers. When are they going to go to collaboration first, competition later, uh, relationships? So even if we have blockchain and know about its potential, that you still can't force people to actually connect and collaborate. So one of the ways that Science Distributed is trying to not force people but to incentivize them is right now, if you get a million dollar grant and you're at a university, the university gets 50 to 60% of that grant for overhead. So the researcher only gets $500,000. 
uh, what are you doing? Why are you spending fifty percent of your research money on administrative administrative fees? That's basically what it is. So there's a way to say if you're a researcher, you can get a grant, keep ninety percent of it. In which case, instead of it taking you four years to sequence something, you're able to hire two more staff and reduce it to two. And so that's an inc- that's how you incentivize people. And um, I think that's how blockchain will help uh, move that along. We got to work out the kinks, uh, but many people use uh, Netflix. It uses open source uh, competitions for the thumbs up button for rating movies. So in 2009, they had a competition. Uh, 490,000 people participated. They gave the winner a million bucks. So there's 490,000 people who participate. Let's pretend each of them worked 10 hours. They got 4.9 million hours for a million dollars. That is a great return on their investment um, because they also got people who are very familiar with their code and their program. And so much like you see blockchain you will see blockchain used for open sourced projects very similarly. It will happen first in like television and finance. Eventually the scientists will get on board and say, ah, this works. And someone much like myself and you, we just got to ring the bell to say, Hey, this potential exists. You should consider it. I'm not sure you explained before how X's and X go together. Oh, so X's and X are a company name. Um, the, in, there was a gold rush in California in 1849. In America, they're called the 49ers. So in 1849, if you wanted to mine for gold, the U.S. dollar as we know it now, there was no single currency. There's a bunch of different currencies. And so if you owned a general store and you wanted to buy a pan for gold, an axe to go dig it up, or an egg to eat, you paid in gold. And so at the time in... 1849, an egg would cost you $12 uh, in modern day currency, but you paid in gold. And so Axes and Eggs is an homage to that because we do do cryptocurrency mining, but we also help if you want to set up your mining operation. We'll sell you those proverbial Axes and Eggs to help everyone mine because at the end of the day, we don't want to own the mine. We want to help supply the tools, resources, and intelligence to help other people not only mine, but make that transition from their current digital form of business to a blockchain-based form of business. In your view, based on what you just described, where do you see the biggest uh, unnecessarily uh, bottlenecks and barriers to faster um, progress when it comes to medicine and healthcare? Uh, it's greed. That's all. So the current insurance system, uh, the way healthcare is set up, the way greed is set up, there was a GAO government accountability office that released for the veteran department of veterans affairs that over three years they spent, I want to say it was $380,000 on special beds, uh, for five patients when they could have just bought each bed for 21,000 bucks. So is that waste? Absolutely. But if you're the provider of the bed, yes, you want to charge 12 times as much as the bed cost to rent it to the government. And so in the form of capitalism, that makes you a great, uh, it makes you, your business is booming. Are you going to self-report and tell on yourself? Probably not. Uh, so the biggest thing that stops the implementation of blockchain is one, do you want that level of transparency? 
because if we have that level of transparency, we can say, uh, so in 20, 2006, 2007, the state of Florida, the doctors in the state of Florida were prescribing more medicine than people in the state of Florida could in, could take without all dying. Uh, they were just pill mills. So if you put uh, pharmaceuticals on a blockchain, you can actually see from cradle to grave where they're at, who has what. No one wants that level of transparency because it cuts down on their ability to sell them. There's a lot of waste. I think every year it's around $480 billion in healthcare administration fees for shuffling papers. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of jobs. And so they don't want you to, you know, uh, move their cheese. And so you'll see that people and organizations, because they're greedy, they, they like their fat paychecks. They'll fight, they'll fight the change of blockchain. And this is where we come to the important point when it comes to implementing technology. Technology is never the problem when it comes to adoption. There's, you know, policy, legislation, human nature that are the ones yes, stopping. Absolutely. So why do you think it's going to be different when it comes to blockchain? Uh, I think that it, it's in the mix. Uh, Bitcoin was an experiment. It's still going on. It's a nine-year open source experiment. Uh, it just showed that amazing things can happen with some technology, like real value can be created. Like all things, you have early adopters and you have fast followers. Um, I think the the estimate is that we are currently in the peak of inflated expectations, which is going to last till around 2020. And then we're going to go through the disillusionment and slope of enlightenment and the plateau of productivity, is applic if applicable, is going to happen after 2030. Do you think that's uh, too pessimistic or a reasonable um, estimate? I think it's very reasonable. Uh, just look at how the internet was adopted. We went from the early 90s, 1990, 91, where dial-up, to now we have Wi-Fi. We actually have a whole generation who don't know what dial-up is. Who were like, why would you plug your f house phone into your laptop? It was like, oh, yeah, we don't have house phones anymore. For people who really, really want to know how blockchain works, you should go and down that pathway to learn. But it's sort of like I fly all the time, millions, I fly hundreds of miles on an airplane. I only know how to put my seat in an upright position, but it does not prevent me from flying. And so blockchain or systems based on blockchain, it'll be like, oh, okay. Yeah, I don't really care because it works. And so that will actually happen probably before 2020. This was the eighth episode of Faces of Digital Health. In the next episodes, we're going to move away from blockchain, turning to China, precision medicine, and virtual reality in the medical space. Stay tuned, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast or leave a review on iTunes so other people interested in these topics can find the content as well. Thank you.